The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is drug reform campaigner Peter Crykant. Peter talks about his own experience as a serious drug user before eventually getting into recovery and turning his life around. We discuss the reasons that people start taking drugs in the first place, and we take a detailed look at Scotland's shocking drug death record in recent years. And Peter explains why he set up a drug consumption room programme in Glasgow and how it can benefit society as a whole by helping people into different forms of recovery, removing individuals from the cycle of offending and imprisonment and freeing up taxpayers' money that would otherwise be spent on policing and prosecution. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, feel free to share it because it always helps. Cheers. So there's so much to talk about here, so many questions I've got, um, sort of general, in general terms, but we'll start specifically with you, Peter, if you can explain just a wee bit of, of your background and growing up, because I'm very interested to find out the journey that you've gone along uh, to take you to the, the things that you're working on now, so yeah, I'll, I'll, the, floor, the floor is yours. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Sean, and um, a little bit about me is that, you know, I'm 43 years old now. Um, you know, I uh, grew up in a, a small council estate and a little village just outside Falkirk. You know, my, my parents, uh, they, they divorced when I was four and, uh, you know, my mum quickly moved into a new relationship with a guy who was, uh, who was violent and, um, you know, drank excessively and took drugs. So my, my earliest childhood memories are of my mum falling through a glass table and being covered in blood and uh, very quickly after that being introduced to alcohol you know at my mum's new boyfriend's house as a five-year-old um, drinking over half a pint of lager and the effects of that to a five-year-old you know I've got my own five-year-old now mm. the effects effects of that to a five-year-old was it was like the part I was like the party and entertainment in the house that night um, you know, and I grew up in that sort of violent and, uh, you know, lots of drugs, lots of alcohol around. And by the age of 11, I was already taking one form of substance or another every day from the age of 11 onwards. Um, cannabis was the first drug that I took um, of my own accord. Mm-hmm. And then I went quickly on to alcohol. And again, my earliest memories is, uh, of that is uh, drinking a bottle of Thunderbird and waking up in the hospital as a 12-year-old covered in vomit. And, uh, you know, at the time it was the Happy Mondays and mm-hmm. the Stone Roses and all that. I had the long middle part in, you know, <laughs> I was just getting into that scene. Um you know, and my, my long middle part in here was covered in mud and vomit and my clothes were lying at one side of the God. bed and my mum at the other crying. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. You know, the next weekend I was out doing it again. You know, that that was my release. That was my opportunity to get out of this house mm-hmm. filled with trauma and violence and excessive alcohol, you know, and get away from, you know, that stuff that, that, that I seen and that I experienced as a really young kid. 
you know, my story just quickly progressed further. You know, I was sectioned at 16 for the first time un under drug-induced psychosis in a mental institution. I uh, went on to be in Young Offenders Institution very quickly after that and then injecting heroin by the age of 17. Spiralled out of control to homelessness, uh, public injecting, sleeping rough, begging for spare change. You know, by the, the age of 20, I was living on the streets of Birmingham injecting crack cocaine and heroin regularly three, four, five times a day, um, you know, and, and, and my life at that point, I didn't think there was ever going to be any anything else mm. other than that. That's just what I thought my life was going to be. Thankfully, I got uh, funding from Birmingham Rough Sleepers team to go into a, a really plush um, residential rehabilitation centre called the Princess Diana Treatment Centre for Drug and Alcoholism. It was a different world for me. You know, there was celebrities in mm. there. There was a guy who used to come down to the, the groups with a, a, a velvet dinner jacket on every day, <laughs> um, you know, and I'm sitting there at like seven, six foot two, nine stone, covered in holes from injecting heroin God. and crack cocaine, you know. Um, but that was the start of a new life for me. You know, in the last 20 years, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel the world you know, all over America, all over, all over Europe. I've met met my wife, who's a professor at Glasgow University and uh, adult education and, so, and, and psychology. And uh, I've got two beautiful children now, a mm. nine-year-old and a five-year-old. And it was really becoming a father that, uh, you know, that changed my perspective, you know, because some of the stuff that I saw uh, growing up, I would mm. never want my kids to experience. Yeah. And uh, that's what's, what's me, driven me to, to, to do what I'm doing now around drug policy campaigning. Mm -hmm. I've got so many questions, and while I would like to keep as as chronological as possible in the sort of order that we do things, I think I will just interject or, or ask these questions as they come mm. because I think they're very relevant to what we're talking about. So first of all, you mentioned that um, your escape or release was for violence and trauma and, and a sort of horrible atmosphere was going out and having a drink and that kind of thing. Do you think that is the escapism is one of the main reasons that people take drugs? Because I always say, like, um, there, are, there are specific reasons and every case is different, but overall they are kind of by and large the same. Because mm -hmm. um, nobody wakes up and says, do you know what? even though I know the pitfalls of heroin, I think I'll get involved in that today. Yeah. That is obviously yeah. a deeper rooted thing. And it's like, it can either be, would you agree with this? It can be a circumstantial escape, escapism where you want to get away from a certain circumstance or escapism where you want to escape the sort of inner dwellings of yourself because you're deeply unhappy with something or you feel detached or dissatisfied. I mean, does that, does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, when I look back on when I first started using drugs, I was I was 11 years old. That's, that's just mental. Like that's... Yeah, totally mental. I mean, at that age, your your brain's not developed. You oh, know, like, you you're not making you're rational not, you're decisions. Seven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In primary seven, um, by the age of 12, you know, it, it was certainly a daily thing for mm -hmm. me. You know, I'm out delivering milk. I'm getting up at three three thirty in the morning, delivering milk six days a week. I'm going out and working in ice cream vans mm -hmm. at night. I'm making over a hundred pounds a week at that point. You know, I'm, you know, you're going back. I don't That's want, a lot of money. You know, thirty years ago, it's a lot of money I'm making. Yeah. You know, to, and all of that money at the age of twelve is going on my my drug and alcohol mm -hmm. um, use. You know, and, and, and when I look back at it, you know, I, there was lots of us. You know, I'm from a small village. We all grew up. You know, lots of us 
done that, you know, and we went on and we took ecstasy and we went to the, you know, the street rave and the Euro yeah. dance and, you know, uh, the the food bar club and still into the old nighters <laughs> back in the day, you know, and, and and there was there was certainly some camaraderie, but when I look back, ninety percent of the people and we know ninety percent of people who take drugs don't don't go on to have issues with mm-hmm. them, you know, I think it is a form of escaping as escapism but it's also a form of connection and Johan Harry talks about it you know the opposite of addiction is connection mm. and you connect with others but 90% of the kids that I took drugs with I smoked weed with and I you know went out drinking and took ecstasy mm. with you know they, they they all sort of settled down and moderated or stopped you know yeah. and um, you know they, they go out and they have a pint or they whatever but they, they went on they got married you know uh, there's only a, a small amount of people I think that are doing it to actually escape that internal trauma mm. you know those adverse childhood experiences that we often talk about yeah. you know and, and, and that's certainly what I think looking back now is the reason that I took drugs excessively you know and um yeah, 90% are out there, they're enjoying it, they moderate, they, they, you know, but the, the, the reality is that the only the only drugs that we can go out there and actually really do that without consequences or without potential consequences in criminal records is alcohol and uh, nicotine, you know, because they're legislated, they're, they're regulated mm-hmm. by the government, they're taxed, and, and why they don't do that with all drugs is, is beyond me because the war on drugs essentially came about because of the alcohol prohibition mm-hmm. in America when alcohol was then not prohibited anymore, the FBI I had to go out and find something else to do at that point, you know. Yeah. So they found drugs and they criminalised it and we've been fighting this war for 100 years and we're never going to win it. Mm-hmm. With, I was going to ask as well, because we were saying that you're all, everybody was kind of doing the same thing even at 12. There might be people that find that really hard to comprehend, but when I was at school, um, you know, people were drinking at 12 and 13 and stuff. So even now as an adult who has kids in my family that are like that age, that kind of horrifies me but I have to cast myself back and go oh, wait a minute yeah, like yeah. people were to I, I didn't drink I didn't really start drinking till I was 17 but there was people taking eckies and like when we were in second year and all that and get into our and I remember thinking like what the fuck are you up to yeah. it does happen but so that was just so common that just everybody was kind of in amongst it when you were younger because I mean when I was younger it was a handful of what I would call mad bastards and sadly some are dead yeah. um, or some are some are in jail mm. but some of them are thriving Mm-hmm. Some of them are like, I'm not going to name any professions because then through the means of jigsaw identification, people will know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I can I can totally see that. But sorry, I, I'm just kind of rambling on. So that was just a, a widespread thing. Just everybody was up to that. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes you, you kind of get blinkered to how many were actually doing it, yeah. you know, because it was everybody in my circle. Mm-hmm. You know, I obviously chose to be within the circles where there was drugs because I was doing it myself, so, you know, I, that was the circle I was in. So it, it, I, I suppose it felt like everybody was doing it. Mm. Certainly in small uh, economically deprived areas where, where there, there was nothing really for kids to do, and, you know, you see that now in Scotland as well, you know, areas of poverty and working-class areas, you know, that I come from, you know, that you, you have to find stuff to do, you know, and, it, and it's like... Mm-hmm. Especially when you you're smoking weed for the first time, you know, and it's like, you know, you know it's wrong, you know it's against the law, you know that that you know mm-hmm. your parents aren't going to be happy with it. It's like a little bit of rule breaking, you know. I think it it, it certainly was par for the course, you know, um, in in my community. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say 
everybody was doing it. That's maybe an over exaggeration, certainly in my circles. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, the whole looking back as well, again, as an adult, I can now identify sort of patterns where people would have went a certain way. So, I mean, where I, I grew up in Rob Royston, which is in the north of Glasgow, which is a, is a good area, uh, there's stuff there now. There's a retail park. Um, you are close to Bishop Briggs. You've got McDonald's. You've got pure yeah. all these kind of things. You've got a football pitch. But when I was growing up, there was nothing because it was a new. Although they were all new houses, there was nothing there. And uh, luckily for me, football was my obsession. Mm. It was all my pals' obsession. It was all we did morning, yeah. noon, and night. But there was. I remember thinking, if we didn't have this, there would be nothing. And we had to kind of improvise and make pitches and yeah, uh, yeah. make goals and all that kind of thing. We were happy with that. But I remember seeing people and thinking, why are you always getting in trouble? Like, how are you always getting in trouble? You come from a nice house, or, like, you, you seem to come from a nice family, you seem to have money. Why are you getting in trouble? And looking back, there was nothing. And if you don't have anything to stimulate you, you're going to find things or you're going to end yeah, up yeah. sort of getting into things. I mean, even we jump backs and chap doors and got mm-hmm. chases and all those yeah, kind of things yeah. at times as well. And those were the kind of more harmless end of the spectrum. Uh, there was something I was going to ask that, oh, I, when when you were were sort of say acting out or taking drugs or, or doing things and you knew you shouldn't have been doing it, was there an element of seeking to regain control? Because it seems to me there would have been a real lack of control in your everyday home life. Yeah, I mean uh, there was there was times where I didn't want to be in my own house. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up, you know, I, I, I walked on eggshells. You know, when I was in my family home, um, I was simply in my own room you know like I, I, there was points where I, I didn't really even want to go and you know get a drink of council juice at the, at the tap you know that's like, water for any non-Scottish people listening yeah. well I wouldn't want to take some water out the tap you know because you know the, it, it, it was simply not a, an environment where I felt comfortable you yeah. know like and um, you know I had to escape for that so there, that, that was getting out the house and, you know and I, I was very much like that as well Sean you know, you know growing up jumpers for goalposts up the park playing football all the yeah. time you know like I went to Holland three years in a row playing football um, you know for, for uh, international tournaments when I was 10, 11 and 12 with uh, BP Football Club you know I was a, a reasonably good good player but you know there was there was scouts coming to watch uh, regularly when, when I was playing football at a club and they, were, they had eyes on three or four years you know, and I'm talking about the age of 12 or 13 here, but alcohol and drugs had already took hold of me that by uh, this time. I remember going out to play football on a Sunday and taking a bag of speed before I would go out and play at 13 years old, you know, thinking that this is going to make me play better, you know, because, you know, obviously that association with amphetamines and going faster, you know, I'm going to be able to, I'm in the midfield and I'm going to be able to run up and down the park, you know. That makes sense. I think maybe a few of the Celtic team have been rattling a bit of speed <laughs> the last few weeks before they've been playing. Yeah. Oh, right, I've cracked it. Right, okay. That that that's that's um that that's incomprehensible to me as mm. well, like to to think it's something at thirteen. I think I would have been or I would have been and not intimidated, but I would have been really unnerved by that yeah. as a wee guy. Um and to you that was just your normality, which then speeding up a continuation of that at a time when you're developing obviously does lead to you ending up sort of down south. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I would like to, to, I've got a few sort of curiosity questions I want to ask about that because there's so many times I'll be in London or Manchester or or even Glasgow and I hear an accent that's not indigenous to the area. So yeah. let's say I hear a Scot down in London and I think to myself, how did you end up here? Mm-hmm. How are you still here? 
Why are you not way up the road? Yeah. Well, you must have family. Surely your family know where you are. And these are all the thoughts that go through my head. And I think, do you not have anybody that you can go back to and say, look, I need to stay or I need a bit of help? How did you end up going down south? Because Falkirk to Birmingham doesn't seem like a, a very common path that people would tread. Yeah, I, I mean, the story kind of goes that, that um, I had a flat, a little, you know, council flat in the Falkirk, and um, I went into the local shop one Thursday, um, and the headline in the Sheriff Court roundup at that point was, you're going back 23 years ago, so reporting was as different. Mm-hmm. I mean, from some newspapers, it's still the same, but the, the headline in the Sheriff Court roundup was local junkie breaks into father's house, um, and that was obviously referring to me. Um, you know, my my family tried, you know, like by this point, my mum had actually separated from, from this guy who was essentially, you know, just sat about drink, drinking and smoking hash all the time and being aggressive and, and violent. And, um, you know, I, I, I look back, I don't blame her in any way. You know, she was out working um, two jobs, you know, working in a sewing factory all day, working mm-hmm. in a pub at night, you know, and, and, and we know now that, you know, things are very different. Social services would have probably been involved if that was today, you know, yeah. like me turning up at a hospital, 12 years old, um, and blackout, you know, but, um, you know, 25-odd years ago, 30 years ago, things were different, you know, and um, so, yeah, I, I ended up on that day, I, I just thought something needs to change here, you know, local local people all knew me, you know, I'm in the, she- the headline in the Sheriff Court Roundup, mm. so I looked for what was available and there was a Christian based rehab available for free down in Birmingham right okay so I I essentially bought enough heroin enough I had enough Valium and uh, jumped on the bus to Glasgow and then the first bus to to Birmingham I got there on the Friday I was meant to go straight to the Christian based rehab I ended up meeting a you know, a street beggar down in Birmingham as soon as I got off the bus, went to a crack house for the weekend, got introduced to crack cocaine, um, you know, and then I went to the rehab on the Monday, but it was one of these places where there's no detox, you know, and um, after about 24 hours, you know, the, the, the detox is, I'm, I'm really detoxing, you know, they're pulling the sheets off me in the morning, mm. you know, I've not slept all night, they're pulling the sheets off me, they want me to come down for morning prayers, so I went down the stairs and everybody's playing banjos and tam- tambourines <laughs> and jumping up and singing hallelujah, praise the Lord for bringing me here, so I've lasted about 36 hours there, you know, and I'm just like, I'm going, you know, you see the Mr. Mr. Muscle advert, yeah. the wee skinny guy, uh, and yeah. they're all standing at the front door showing me pictures, like, this is me when I first got here, and look at me now, you know, because they're out farming the land and planting vegetables, mm. and, you know, God love them, because, you know, I'm a, I, I, I have a faith today, and, uh, you know, it just I, I wasn't going to be able to do it. I'm 36 hours into this, I'm sitting on the toilet having diarrhoea and, and, and actually vomiting into the sink at the same time. So I've left there, back into Birmingham City Centre, and the next three years were just chaos because at that point, crack cocaine wasn't in Scotland. So I hadn't, I'd, I'd free based when I was 16, but I didn't even really know I was actually smoking crack because we called it free and we thought it was cool, you know. Right, okay. um, but I hadn't really took crack other than that. And uh, heroin was so cheap down there as well. At the time, you were paying £35 for half a gram in Scotland. It was £15 down there. So rather than take less drugs because it was cheaper, I was just taking more drugs, you know, more crack, more heroin, methadone, benzos, you know, whatever I could get in my system mm-hmm. um, just to escape my reality, really. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up in Birmingham. And, you know, that that was the start of the, the, the change for me, you know, because if I hadn't got 
ended up there if I hadn't got into that that rehabilitation centre you know things may never have changed for mm-hmm. me you know and um, yeah so Birmingham was chaos but it was the start of the, the new road so was that just would you say that was that is your main motivation then for taking drugs because it's something that again people often misunderstand they think that you're just people are waking up and going do you know what I could do with a right buzz today I'm feeling great and I want to capitalise and build on it and, and sort of make the most of it yeah. was it for you that just every day you're going oh fuck this like I can't it's, it's, this is impossible to get out of or I may as well just shut my mind down is that how you're thinking yeah I mean I think I, I, I'm already you know thinking like that as a child you know, like as a as a young child, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, I'm already thinking, I can't go on like this. I need I need something I need something to change, you mm-hmm. know, I need something different, you know, like I'm I'm going to school and because I'm reasonably well dressed, you know, I'm I'm an only child and you know, my, by this point my, my, my dad's remarried, my mum's got this 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 boyfriend, you know, f- the you know, because I've got two sets of parents, you know, I'm mm-hmm. getting like a BMX from one and a hi-fi from the other, you know, like, <laughs> and and big Christmas gifts, you know, yeah. and they're sort of competing financially for my mm-hmm. for my affection, you know, but they're not com- competing financially, eh, emotionally for my affection, you know, like there was never, and I don't know if this was the area I came from or if it was just my household, but there was never I, I, I love you, mm. you know, like there is not a day goes by that my two two children are not told that they're loved, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, that, and and, and they're told regularly, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, I think my oldest is in nine now and if mum drops him off at the school and she's like, I love you. You know, it's like... It's so funny. You don't know how lucky you are. Yeah. He's at that stage where he's like skanking away like, it's all right saying it at home, but no in front of all my mates, mum, you know. But, uh, you know, and that sort of escapism, that I was already wanting to escape from that. So it wasn't like I woke up at 17-year-old 17, 17 and says, I want to become a heroin addict today, yeah. you know what I mean? It was it was in the post for me, you know. And like I say, most of the guys that I took drugs with didn't go on to take, 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 take the types of drugs that I took mm-hmm. and didn't take them in the excess that I took them. You know, the, that's the thing with drugs, man. It's like we need to understand that drugs are here to stay you can yeah. bust the police can go out there and or the police for the non-scottish people <laughs> the police can go out there and, and you know bust a criminal gang and another criminal gang's coming in the next day yeah. even stronger because they've got a bigger patch now you know what i mean and, and unless we regulate unless we <coughs> offer the correct support to the 10 percent of people who 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 take drugs where they do cause problems for them unless mm-hmm. they get the correct support we're never going to move forward with mm-hmm. Scotland's accolade of worst drug death rate in, in the Western world. Yeah, we'll touch on a couple of those figures just now because I think I think they're interesting. There are um, more questions I have for you in terms of your personal circumstance and story and how you came to come to recovery and all those kind of things. But dr- as you say, drugs are here to stay. Um, that is such a simple sentence. I'm sure it's been said a million times. I've never heard it before. And that... It's true. They're never, ever, ever gone away. They've never gone away before. What we've seen um, is an increase. So the 2018 figures showed that Scotland's drug-related death rate was higher than all other EU countries. I would like to caveat that by saying that there are recognised issues with under-reporting in some countries. However, it doesn't matter. Even if they are under-reporting, and they're 10 times worse than Scotland, Scotland is still absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the latest estimate is that we have 60,000 problem drug users which is 1.6% of the adult population 
uh, and with a population of 5.5 million people, Scotland has reported a similar number of overdose deaths as Germany does with a population of 83 million. That is... yeah. That is absolutely staggering. Yeah, it's absolutely staggering. And I think a, a, a real comparison for me is if you look at Denmark, because Denmark has roughly the same population as Scotland. They, they on average, have about 300 deaths per year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in 2018, we had 1,187, and that's expected to rise again. The yeah. drug death statistics come out on the 15th of December 2020. And that's for 2019. Yeah. So we 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 even our reporting as as chasing our tail a wee bit. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. As you said there about the 1,187 deaths uh, of, of drug as a, in relation to drug misuse in 2018, that is a 27 percent increase in 2017. What has gone wrong there? What has what what has happened? Well, I think there's a few major major factors. I mean. 2015-16 the Scottish government cut the budget for drug and alcohol partnerships I mean the caveat was that the NHS were going to pick that up the mm. NHS are already stretching underfunded as it is and they didn't pick that up that's the reality of mm. it you know frontline services are not being funded correctly they can't provide the support that's needed that's that's key key number one you know Access to residential rehabilitation has dropped dramatically in Scotland over the last 12 years, you know, and the Scottish government have overseen that. Mm-hmm. You know, the Drug Death Task Force was set up two years ago, nearly two years ago. You know, the original makeup of that Drug Death Task Force was 23 people, one person without any sort of lived experience. Mm-hmm. There has been a couple of people added to that. However, the money that they've been given, the £20 million, is not filtering into frontline services. That's filtering into more research, mm. you know. And, and, and the last thing we need is more research in Scotland right now. We need action. We don't need research. Um, and I think the Scottish government have been trying to play the card around, you know, drug uh, laws not being devolved around the Misuse of Drugs Act to deflect from the fact that they've overseen you know, the, the continuous exponential rise in drug deaths in Scotland. You know, our drug death rates are three and a half, four times higher than England and Wales, and mm. they report the same as us. Mm. They have the same legislation as us. You know, and some of that can be linked to Scotland's, you know, association with how, how we drink and take drugs, you know. Like, mm. You know, there is a big association with, you know, exuberance in Scotland and yeah. stuff. But, you know, you've got to look to other countries where, you know, they, they also... Um, have similar legislation, but they don't, they don't report anywhere near as as high as us. So, yeah, there's lots of factors to to, to take into account. Street benzodiazepines they are linked to mm-hmm. about 800 deaths in those 200 2018 stats. Yeah. Um, a few years ago now, uh, prescription benzodiazepines were absolutely cut. You know, they don't nobody prescribes prescription benzodiazepines now. So you take a safe supply, which is regulated by the NHS and prescribed mm-hmm. you take that away you don't don't give it anymore you don't give an alternative and, and you create an illegal market for street benzodiazepines which nobody knows what are in, what, what's in them mm-hmm. you know so we've got to question what we're doing I think safe supply which uh, I am a big advocate of giving people diamorphine pharmaceutical grade heroin rather than street heroin benzodiazepines and enough benzodiazepines so they don't need to go and buy these mm-hmm. you know who knows what's in them ones from the street mm-hmm. you know we take we take the the illegal illicit substances out 
you know, out of the, the equation if we mm-hmm. just give people prescriptions of what they're actually needing. Yeah. The uh, I'm, I'm interested to stick in this point um, and I would like to go back to asking you some more questions, I suppose because we're looking at the bigger picture um, and it's quite easy to talk about numbers and figures and here's what's happening, but then what happens is we lose this sort of personal identification, obviously, when we're talking about somebody. Yeah. Um, but while sticking on this... Um, Let's just say I'll play devil's advocate. So for anybody who who lacks intelligence to realise that I'm being deliberately inflammatory in order to play a character, here is your one-minute warning. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your grief to me. So I'm playing the the ignorant idiot. Why why should I care about some junkie? I mean, I, I, I pay my taxes. You know, I, I, I've never taken drugs. Why do I care what happens to somebody that doesn't, doesn't improve my life anyway? What do you say to that? Well, yeah, I mean, that that's uh, something I've heard numerous times, you know, obviously uh, that language, um, you know, is this d- diminishing now in, in society. But mm. the, the simple reality is that the more we support people, and as an example, within a safe consumption facility, yep. the more society benefits, yep. the less you have to pay in taxes. Mm-hmm. Because at the moment, the Glasgow City Council are constantly out picking up discarded equipment yeah people are constantly having ambulances called out for overdoses people are constantly having to go into hospital to get treated for infected wounds <coughs> the illicit drug market is causing us chaos policing and crime to try and f- enforce these outdated 50 year outdated laws is costing mm-hmm. an absolute fortune if you invite people into a safe environment and you say like you're using these drugs we know you're using these drugs you're going to be using them anyway what we can do is we can support you to use prescription drugs we can potentially um, work with you to maybe look at some of the trauma you've experienced because we know that most of these people who are publicly injecting heroin have experienced really hardcore sexual and domestic and violent trauma mm-hmm. throughout their childhoods and growing up and they've cre- been created and more trauma has been created by the criminal justice system in and out of prison um, you know we look back to 20 years ago when I was in prison you got a pot in the corner that you had to have a shit and slop out in the morning you know what I mean that's creating trauma for people you know waking mm. up in the morning and your cells full of flies and you're sleeping on a two inch thick mattress with a jaggy blanket that you can't even sleep with yeah. you know we can invite a change in society which reduces the costs for the taxpayer mm-hmm. you know the businesses in Copenhagen the businesses in Vancouver the business district association in Vancouver which represents 500 businesses in the area and the residents association came out with a statement that they could not live without the drug consumption facility in Vancouver the chief superintendent in Sydney says that the business district's improved and the amenity in the area has great vastly improved since they introduced their safer injecting facility and listen to this Sean this is a key part for listeners over 80% of the people who attend the drug the safe injection facility in Sydney they accept referrals into treatment services Mm -hmm. now when you consider that two thirds of users in Scotland are in no form of treatment that's the the people who drugs have created problems for they're in no form of treatment this is a way to get people into Mm -hmm. drug substitute prescribing residential rehab social psychological support you know so those are some key things that I would say to the 
these junkies just don't matter. Yeah, you yeah. know, because the reality is that now we we such a big issue we we. Um, alcohol such a big issue with drugs in Scotland I think everybody's life is touched in one way or another yeah absolutely I think even if you are one of those people who would sort of espouse that type of viewpoint or you know I'm alright Jack so what do I care about him even if because I always make the I think the incorrect assumption that everybody you can appeal to everybody's better nature some people you can't yeah. some people really just don't give a shit I'm quite unapologetic about it yeah um, I have absolutely zero respect for that but fine it is what it is so I would then just say to those people just to kind of echo and, and sort of even just add on to everything that you so perfectly um, summarised there that even if you do not care one slight bit about uh, about the welfare of anybody or improving anybody helping anybody's anybody's life or helping them to recover or to conquer any addiction fine but your life still will be better because your tax money will be better spent. So yep. there you go. Your benefit from that, benefit from that. You don't have to see these quote unquote junkies. I hate using that word that you so dislike. Yeah, they're yeah. going to be less of a nuisance because let's also be honest. I don't have any problem with saying, um, or I don't feel bad for saying drug addicts are a nuisance to society. That doesn't mean that I don't care, doesn't mean that I do not fully sympathise, it doesn't mean that I don't support that, but it can be a nuisance if you're being, we've all kind of been harassed at some point or accosted by somebody demanding 50p and then you're like, well, I genuinely don't have 50p yeah. and then you're getting a sort of mouthful of abuse or even feeling a bit uncomfortable or screaming in Sucky Hall Street and all these things, it is a nuisance. I mean, I think um, Russell Brand is always sort of sums it up really in a really funny way that he says he was just a total arsehole nuisance and he's like, doesn't mean I was a bad person. Yeah, the yeah, two yeah. things are, they're, they're not uh, mutually exclusive. Oh, wait, no. I've just totally tried my tie myself <laughs> and I'm not there. Well, if I said something bad there, sorry, I didn't mean it. So let's go back to you. What what was, let's look at the sort of human cost, or the, the, the wider cost. Like, what was things like with your mum when, obviously, when you were down south? Did, did you have contact with her? Not really, no. I, I had very little contact with any of my family while I was in Birmingham um, during that period. Like, were they trying to track you down or anything? Obviously, it's not as if they can just FaceTime you. You're, yeah. You're in another country. Yeah, and believe it or not, 20-odd years ago, we didn't really have that. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know I it's, it's hard for you young kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we like I'm an old man now, I feel, but... Um, you know, we, mobile phones were just starting to come out then and, you know, like, it, it wasn't really... We weren't, like, connected, easily connected, like, you know, th what was it, 25 years ago now, you know, like we are now. Um, you know, they kind of knew where I, where I was and, you know, they, they knew that um, every maybe six months or something, you know, I'd make contact or I'd let them know I was okay and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the, the one that always got me was my gran. You know, like, um, I uh, was the oldest grandchild of lots of them. Don't know how many she's got now and how many great-grandkids she's got. My grand's... Uh, oh, she's still kicking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Legend. She's, she's eight, 87, and uh, I've not been up much, obviously, with the, 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 the current coronavirus and stuff, but I did go up a couple of weeks back before things started to, you know, when the lockdown finished and before things yeah. started to get... get you know, out of hand again, and she's still sitting there in her wee council house, you know, tiny wee council house, smoking 20 fags a day, knitting, <laughs> um, you know, my two boys always get knitted jumpers and Probably. stuff. Um, that was the biggest one for me, you know, because I, I think 
I was like the blue eyed boy because I was the first grandchild, you yeah. know. My mum's the oldest, is five, you know, she's got five brothers. And uh you know, that was difficult being being sort of even even all the stuff that I'd done, I was always you know, I, I would always be welcoming my, my, my grand's house, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I would never be turned away like aye, for my grannies. Aye. Um so yeah, it was the the cost was 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 large, you know, and I look back on it now and, you know, the same with, with my dad and my, my stepmom, you know, like, um, you know, the, I've got all these really nice relationships in my life now, you know, because of the way that I le- lead my life mm-hmm. now, you know, and like at that point I did break into my father's house just before I went to Birmingham, you know, and stole some money from him and stuff, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I got over the front door after that but see now if, mm-hmm. if my dad and my stepmom's away on holiday I've got the key you know yeah. I, I'm the one that goes to the house to, to check the mail and make sure mm-hmm. the house is alright when they're away and stuff so um, the cost was great but it's repaired now you yeah know? yeah so I, li- I like that I, I, I've got a I don't want to call it an obsession but I've got a real fascination with like tales of redemption yeah. because we've all done things that you're like that you wish you hadn't had done that some small some large and i think that can often be one of the main stumbling blocks to people trying to ever um turn things around because they think well what's the point because i've i've cut so many relationships or i've, I've done so many things that they can i can never possibly yeah. how can i possibly be forgiven but your prime example i mean because it's you know the, those things are, are unpleasant yeah, um, yeah. and they're so, damaging to, mm-hmm. to relationships and you could understand why somebody wouldn't turn the other cheek if they yeah. did you know they would kind of be within their rights to but it just shows anything can be turned around mm-hmm. um to i'm assuming it was just years of chaos until you kind of was there just a turning point where you thought right i need to i need to turn my life around i need to change things yeah i mean after i went to uh, this re- residential rehabilitation center it was in munsley um, just outside Nor- norwich norfolk right. area um from birmingham I, you know i got on the train i had a black bag with a sleeping bag and you know a couple of bits and pieces um at that point um you know I, the way that i used drugs was 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 chaotic you know i used to often get a, like a, a a can it would be coke cans because you wouldn't get iron brewed in, <laughs> down in birmingham and i would have left straight away <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you cut the, the coke can in half and you would actually use the bottom of the, the can to cook up right. your hair on nowadays you get the one hit kits where they have a spoon and a clean filter but you know i'd be using puddle water sometimes and you know i got on this train to, to go up to the, the residential rehabilitation centre with enough heroin to inject on the way there and and I used the upside back of a can to do it in the train toilets and the train toilets going up. Um but from there I actually ended up getting secondary treatment as well. Uh, I think they, they they realised that I needed more than, than just uh, three months, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I went down to uh, Brighton. I mm-hmm. got to choose where I got went to go. And, and nice. Yeah, Brighton was the absolutely best choice I ever made. Um, I went down there and I'd done a secondary rehab down there for three months and it was like CBT and stuff. Right, okay. Because see, when I went into that first treatment centre, I really mm. honestly thought that heroin and crack was the problem. You know, I just just stopped taking heroin and crack. I can re- recapture my glory <laughs> days, you yeah. know I'm thinking? I can recapture my glory days. I didn't really have any glory days. You know, see, when I got a chance to like critically look at my, my drug use and, and think about, fucking hell, I was taking drugs at 11 years old. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I critically looked at that. I thought, I'm 
part of that 10% that everything I, uh, that when I take alcohol and drugs, it creates these issues. So down in Brighton, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s by this point, you know, and uh, I get a good job. I've got a sales job. I've got a nice flat by the sea, 10 minutes walk from Brighton Seafront. You mm. know, it's, I'm, I, I'm not taking any alcohol or drugs at this point, but I'm in this sales role. I'm working with all these young people. I'm managing like 20... I'm a young person myself, but I'm managing like a team of like 20 people. Mm-hmm. These all, all hitting these sales targets and they're all going out partying. I'm thinking I'm missing out here. So I ended up going out partying and, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, everybody would have thought my life was great, you know, because I've got a, a good job. I'm earning yeah. good money. I've got a nice flat, you know, but the reality was that I took my, my, my addiction, I suppose, with, heroin and crack and I transferred it into alcohol I'm just going to the pub all the time you know I'm going into the pub on payday and I'm handing the the, the, the bar manager the like £400 you know I'm on for a first name terms with everybody in the bar and I'm right. handing him £400 for my tab you know and I'm sitting there seven nights a week drinking you know and, and, and at some point I just thought I'm going to stop altogether because I want to do other things. Yeah, you know I want to go and I want to travel and you know I want to settle down and have a family at some point. And I'm not going to meet I'm not going to meet the women in my dreams in a wee snide bar and um, you know some back street in Birmingham. So don't knock it. I've met some great people in snide bar. I'm joking. <laughs> joking. Well, I met my wife in LA Fitness. <coughs> Did you? Yeah, yeah, in the gym. So you know, and, and after just after I made that decision, like I'm going to stop drinking as well mm. now. I joined the gym and I met my wife in there. I know, yeah. So, and so were you both staying down south and then you come back up the road or what? Or? Yeah, well, my, my wife's American. She, oh, right, she right. came out here to study when she was 21 and got her PhD here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we um, we moved to Scotland the end of 2013. That's a long story, Sean. I ended up going to America with my wife and trying to start a business over there. And uh, I went ahead and we started this business, invested all our life savings into it, and uh, um, I travel under a B1, B2 tourism visa because of my criminal record. Right. So we started the business, put all the money into it, and tried to change to a, a business visa. So I applied for a change of status, essentially, mm-hmm. so that I could stay there and operate the business, but it was denied. So we had to pack our stuff, lost all the money, oh, no. come home. Um, and we chose Scotland because... We thought it would be a better place to raise our kids. Mm. When was that? To the end of 2013, that was. The, 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 the business was up and running for about six months. Right. And we were employing three American citizens. And so we had to let them go. We sold the business just for enough money to cover all our expenses because we'd shipped all our stuff to America yeah. and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like £3,000 just to ship our stuff over. Um, so that was a big disappointment at the time. But... Um, Scotland's been the best choice ever because, you know, we came here, my wife got the job at Glasgow University, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, I think ultimately it's led me to doing something that I feel so passionate about that I probably wouldn't have got involved in anywhere else, you mm-hmm. know. And that passion is the, would that be the drug consumption yeah. rooms? Tell me, what is a drug consumption room by its, its most simple definition? It's a, simply a place where people can come who are using illegal drugs and use them in a safe environment so they're not prone to things like HIV or mm-hmm. hepatitis 3, C through uh, sharing equipment. And, of course, if they overdose, they, they'll be kept alive. Um, that's it in its simplest form. You know, what we would look to do in any good 
um, consumption facility is have lots of additional support services in there. So you're introducing people into drug treatment services away from illicit drugs onto pharmaceutical drugs mm-hmm. and prescription drugs so that they can live healthier lifestyles, um, you know, and abstinence-based programs in there as well. And, and crucially, things like housing and welfare um, and social psychological support to help people start to look at and maybe deal with some of the trauma that they've had through the criminalisation of drug users. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The... Um Again, I, I won't invite the, the, the ignorant observer back in, but I, just again to point out, even if, if you don't care about the, the the welfare of an individual who is going through something like this, then it will also serve to benefit you almost immeasurably because you're talking less drug users on the streets. You're talking less police time being wasted or, you know, what it could be. Because, you, you know, the whole thing about when somebody gets arrested and it's like, there's murderers and rapists out there and you're jailing me and you're like I well, mate not all the time like not 24-7 yeah. but to a degree you know we're seeing police cuts we're seeing cuts to the health service paramedics I believe I might I might am I speaking out of turn that's quite that's true isn't it There's, we're seeing less police on the streets I think so yeah I mean uh, budgets are tight and I think that's only going to get worse Sean you know look mm. at look at what's happening now with the current sort of Covid pandemic yeah. you know resources are going to be limited stretched stretched yeah and you know less money is going to be filtered into drug and alcohol treatment services less money for policing and crime less money for our health service you know businesses are going out of uh, business now you know people are looking for jobs already yeah. you know and, and you, ha- you only have to walk through Glasgow just outside the main sort of area to see all the smaller businesses who knows how many pubs are going to close down etc you know that's not just the owners of those places that's that's you know lots of people um financially stretched and i think as a government we're going to have to look at more ways to 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 (coughs) regulate the drug market um, because we're spending an absolute fortune on this war on drugs Mm -hmm. you know and criminalizing a street level drug user does nobody any good it certainly doesn't do society any good because you know one in four one in four people are in the prison system just now um for street level drug use Mm. that's drug use which is not concerned in supply of drugs. Yeah. You know, one in four people, and it costs an absolute fortune just to process them through the criminal justice system in the first place, and then a fortune to keep them in the prison. You know, we could be taking people like me, because that's what I'm talking about now. I'm talking about people like me, and we could be uh, providing them Mm -hmm. with opportunities to change. Yeah. You know, I could have continued to be a drain in society for the last 20-odd years, or I could have put into society and I was and I've only been putting into society I've I've visited the hospital once uh, in the last 20 years you know Mm. if I had still been using drugs I'd have been in and out of hospital yeah Mm -hmm. you know I mean there's that there's um, the fact that you know even in in jails as you're saying one in four people for street level drugs that is absolutely mental I think Oregon I'm sure it's Oregon in the past the past couple of days have decriminalised uh like possession of cocaine, heroin, other drugs, as, as long as it's for personal use. Yeah. There's probably a lot of people now on Skyscanner, like that, Glasgow to <laughs> Oregon, <laughs> Portland, party time, get over there. Um, it is. It, it just makes complete sense because then it just becomes, and I'm saying this purely as, as a, a very uneducated observer, it just becomes a cycle of offending and incarceration. So you get yeah. caught with X amount of drugs, right, you're going to jail we're going to make no attempt to sort of 
cut that cycle we're just going to perpetuate it and i would mm-hmm. dare say that it's probably fucking easier to get drugs in jail than it is outside yeah. the jail sometimes yeah it is how did he even get him in there oh, had a, I had a berlini a good really good pal of mine big frank yeah. berlini prison officer um on talking about this whole cycle of offending and i would just like to say that frank obviously you're now doing your job mate if these, uh, <laughs> these people are getting their drugs in so maybe you want to step things up a wee bit yeah, it's a it's a tough one because you're right. There's probably as much. Oh, joking, Frank. By the way, he's such a good fighter. He'll, part of me. <laughs> he'll be he'll be in here next week. Um, no, you're right though. I mean, the criminalisation is not working. You know, there's more drugs in the prison than there is outside. That's the reality of it. Or, or as much. It's as easy. It's as easy to access in there as it is outside. Yeah. You know, and and we're looking at places like Oregon and Portugal now. You know, Portugal's had this in place for 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 uh, years and years now have they not reported like unbelievably almost stratospheric improvements in yeah. the society yeah hardly a single case of HIV I think they've had like five cases they have like five cases in a year and Glasgow's had over 180 cases in the last five years you know I heard about this a real spike in, in that happening yeah it's, it's the largest European outbreak of HIV in the last uh, well, and it's also the largest outbreak that the UK has seen in the last 30 years that's horrendous um, and it's all condensed in, in Glasgow city centre amongst public injecting drug users you know it's it's all about do, to do with drug use nothing mm-hmm. else um, you know it's actually moved outside Glasgow as well there's been cases now detected in North Lanarkshire as well so it's currently uh, ongoing and, and, and still still mm-hmm. ongoing so um, it, it's terrible but Portugal hardly reports any deaths now in comparison to all, yeah. all these other countries if we look at america america now obviously we've just seen the elections there's four more states um or three three more states legalized and one more state legalized for medical use for cannabis so Mm -hmm. we've got 15 states in america now who are you know taxing and making money from cannabis you know and it's, it's certainly in my my opinion a much less harmful drug than alcohol yeah and they, they can use that money to actually support, you know, treatment services for the drugs that do cause people more issues and more problems. So we need to look at what they're doing because that's essentially 15 states in America that are breaking federal law. Mm. And the Scottish government are still saying we can't do this because a 50 years outdated uh, Misuse of Drugs Act and policing and crime's fully devolved and, and health's fully devolved to our country. So mm-hmm. the health legislation, the Health Scotland Act 2008, that could easily be used for the Scottish government to bring legislation so that people can w- work in a drug consumption facility and the Scottish Lord Advocate could easily introduce a de facto or a non-prosecutional exclusion zone around a DCR, so mm-hmm. somebody turning up with a temp, some homeless, undernourished, uh, street-level drug user with a ten-pound bag of heroin can go in there and not be scared to get arrested. It's very simple what we're asking for. It's very mm-hmm. straightforward. We already see police forces. You know, like in the West Midlands, as an example, bringing in a de facto decriminalisation. There's nothing to say that couldn't happen here in Scotland. Mm. The Scottish government, Scottish government can't. They, 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 they're getting seen for what the reality is. They can't use this as a as a deflection anymore. Mm-hmm. If there was a will, they would step in and say something because we've got SNP MPs like Alison Hewless, Ronnie Cowan, Pete Wishart, who would all who would all. If you got them in here just now, I think they would all say that they're banging their head against a brick wall because the UK Home Office are not going to change this. If we set this up, it's up to the Scottish Government and the Lord Advocate to do that. 
and to say if you want to challenge us, challenge us in court. Mm. If the UK government wants to wants to challenge us, but we as a we as a nation, we as a government, we as a, the senior law officer cannot stand back anymore and watch our most vulnerable people in society dying on a daily basis when we have an internationally recognised evidence-based way to reduce the harm caused by drugs and keep people alive. Mm. So the ball is firmly in the Scottish government's court in that sense? I think so, yeah. I mean, the reality is that the UK Home Office, the Westminster government are not going to change this. You know, Tommy Shepard brought a 10... Tommy Shepard... MP mm-hmm. brought a 10 minute members private members bill it's due for its second reading in a week or so um, we know that that's not going to become an act of law the UK Home Office are firmly against this Kip Malthouse said this 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 was just a distraction when he came up to the UK government summit held in Glasgow on the 27th of February which followed on from the, the, the Scottish summit on the the, the Scottish summit on the 27th of February sorry and the UK government on the 28th of February here in Glasgow at the NEC where the opposite end of the spectrum you've got Joe Fitzpatrick the Scottish health and sports minister saying that drug consumption rooms are needed we need to have this now pushing the UK government let's stop pushing the UK government to change this because they're not going to mm-hmm. let's just do it you know, Professor David Nutt says Scotland should be able to do this. What are England going to do? Send in the tanks? Aye, what are you going to do? Phone the polis? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Phone the polis when the polis is already fully devolved. Yes. Um, yeah. I heard that the UK government, no, no, well, Pretty Patel and the Home Office were considering a sort of pilot decriminalisation scheme to see how it went and then that a certain um, guy who looks like brushes his hair with a toffee apple and sleeps two hours a night, Boris Johnson, <laughs> got wind of it. He, did he, look, he, he looks and sounds as if he gets 90 minutes sleep a night or two hours <laughs> and he's constantly like disorientated and confused. Like, what, 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 what? Like, he's always like, every time that guy gets asked a question, it's as if he just woke up yeah, and he's like, can he, he's like trying to make sense of his surroundings. But I heard that he uh, stepped in and went like, the fuck you will. Do you know anything about that? about that pilot scheme yeah no I I think uh, we we certainly have police and crime commissioners and places like Birmingham and North Wales um, who are who are in support of um, decriminalisation around drug use you know we have forces like the West Midlands Police Force who were the, I think the first force in the UK to actually carry naloxone which is the the, the simple straightforward drug to keep people alive oh, from right, a okay. heroin overdose they, they, is that like rebalance the system or yeah basically uh, shuts down the receptors so right, okay. you know the, the it's a simple administration it can be administered the, the police force in West Midlands carry the nasal spray in Scotland we have a take home naloxone programme which comes in an injectable kit it takes 15-20 minutes to do the training online mm-hmm. and anybody can carry a kit you can go to a pharmacy and pick one up um, and it's, it's you know they, they've, they're already carrying it in the West Midlands police We've seen them bring in this de facto decriminalisation. We've got police and crime commissioners. That's the thing in England. You know, p- police forces are uh, regional. Mm-hmm. So they can bring those sorts of things in. And it's exactly the same in Scotland. You could look at it from a same from the same stance. Mm. Police Scotland's fully devolved. The Lord Advocate has said it, you know, that uh, policing and crime is, is fully his responsibility. The buck stops with him in terms of anything in terms of police and crime. What reason could you think of that they wouldn't want to 
to take these steps because you would imagine that in any normal society somebody would identify this was happening and say, well, I hold essentially one of the keys to at least reducing yeah. what's going on here. What, why would yeah. they possibly not want to take those steps? You know, there's been there's been arguments. I mean, that that it can't legally legally be done without a change to the Misuse of Drugs Act, mm-hmm. um, Schedule Five, um, Scotland Act. You know, and what's devolved and what's not devolved. But I think the simple reality is that we need to challenge constitutional boundaries. And I understand, you know, from a perspective of allowing people to work in it, you know, professionals, you know, health professionals working in a facility may be uh, you know, wary of doing that unless there is a change to the Misuse of Drugs Act but there's ways and means around that with the Devolved Health Act um, and I think up until now it has been the Scottish and the Scottish government's last sort of line of defence mm-hmm. you know because let's get it right for the last 12 years they've just seen overseen an expedite a continued exponential rise in drug deaths year upon year upon year you know we're, we're talking about a, you've already said that you know a 27 percent increase between 2017 and 2018 i, I just think that's absolutely insane yeah, I mean, and and health's been health and and policing's been devolved for ages now. You know, the Misuse of Drugs Act is a is a scapegoat for the Scottish government, and Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want to talk about this because mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's not like we can we can even use it as an independence tool anymore. You know, mm-hmm. if only we had the Misuse of Drugs Act. Uh, you know, it's another reason we should have independence. No, it's another reason you should. Challenge the constitutional boundaries, and that may lead to independence because more mm. people may come. Because I, I've went no to yes. You know, I was a no voter in 2014. I would vote yes now, but I wouldn't vote for the Scottish government because outside Nicola Stur- Sturgeon, I wouldn't. When we get independence outside Nicola Sturgeon, I don't trust any of them. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. I mean, I'm not going to use this as a, an opportunity to bash. Um, the, the Scottish government, because to an extent, what would that achieve? But also, I'm a, I would be pro independence, but I think it sometimes becomes very dangerous that we're then just like fingers and ears latch, eyes shut, la la, I can't, no no, I can't see, like, and <laughs> yeah. you know, refusing to acknowledge any wrongdoing, it becomes cultish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at, yeah, the, was it the fine, was he finance minister? Oh, who's this phoning me? Here we go. This is this is how live and raw and unfiltered this is. No idea, so that's not getting answered. Uh, um, sales call. I uh, was it the finance guy, Derek McKay. Um, decline that phone call. Um, and th- th- there's so many things and so many people, and I think you're only there because um, the the majority of Scotland wants to see independence, and that's why they keep voting for you because you'd be out. I believe so many of them would be out in their arse. Yeah. Um, but that's maybe another conversation for another day. But I I, I, under, I understand. Uh, and sort of agree with what you're saying there comes a point where it's like right that actually makes sense sorry I'm just sort of getting my head around what you just said about well at least try and challenge constitutional boundaries because then as you say people might look at it and go wait a minute this is not a nation of equals because we should be able to determine this because when it comes down to people are dying and society has been impacted um, like almost immeasurably Mm -hmm. then change has to Change has to come. With the drug consumption room, what has been the public response and what has been the police response? So, yeah, we've been operating now for a number of weeks and the police response was... Um, <coughs> to begin with, it was it was a very... Um, 
what's the word? It was a very monitored service within the first couple of weeks, but it was also very public. You know, this mm. was a public statement. I can't run a drug consumption facility from the back of a rusty transit van that's going to support 500-plus people publicly injecting in Glasgow City Centre. So they monitored it the first couple of weeks, but I wasn't really providing a service. I was providing a public statement to the BBC and to the other media outlets that this is going to happen. Mm. I'm going to come out and do this. So since week three, when we really moved into the alleyway, when we moved away from the, you know, the the public right outside the Glasgow High Court area, yeah. um, it, it started to be used and the, the police response was very measured to begin with. You know, they came round when we would be setting up in the morning and they were very uh, cordial. You know, if you need us, you can contact us here. Um, you know, they didn't monitor, they, they knew we were there. Um, people were starting to come and use the van to uh, uh, inject drugs inside the van. Um, but all of a sudden, a couple of weeks ago, the police response changed. Um, you know, we had three homeless people, clearly homeless, um, you know, inside the van. And f people had been in the van before when the police came round and they had not done anything about it. But on this occasion, as I say, we knew from the word go that day that the police response had changed. They tried to get in the van while these people were inside. So a charge was... Uh, I was charged under the Misuse of Drugs Act Section 23A um, for obstruction um, and obviously there was, a, there was a big outcry about that in terms of publicly um, but the following week which was just the week gone there the police response went back to normal and we were the busiest we had been uh, why, so, is, why is that? Help me to understand why they just all of a sudden changed tact and then let it go again I really don't know whether though where that decision was made from. You know, you could you could argue that decision was made from high up. You could argue that it was uh, an officer on the street who just decided to act on the day. Um, that you know, the crown office have said something. Who knows where that decisions mm. came from? But obviously, the public outcry around what we're doing, providing a harm harm reduction service and keep, keeping people alive, because that's all we're doing. You know, it's a converted van. Yeah. We're not offering wraparound support and care. Do you think that's an example of showing how much power the public have? Um, case in, or case studies I would point to would be three in particular. Um, the first one would be when, the you know, the exam scandal. Yeah. When they were basically downgrading people or marking people based on where the postcode was. So the yeah. more affluent areas, they had a less of a reduction. Uh, and I think they came out because I remember seeing it in the morning and saying, no, this is a decision and it's scientific and it's fair and it's been calculated and we're sticking with it. You have five hours of fury from the public, myself included. I mean, what the, I, I did my exams 12 years ago, but I was fucking livid. Yeah, yeah. And then by 5pm, they went, oh, sorry, actually, <laughs> uh, we're going to change our mind. Yeah. Um, the next one, I think, was when they were saying, no, uh, students, I mean, students were obviously rushed back at the behest of universities to make money from rent, mm -hmm. um, from, from students they had staying in their residences. And when they came back and we saw a spike and they said, uh, sorry, when the students went back and we saw a spike in COVID cases and they then said, well, no, they'll be locked up and you're not be going home for Christmas and all these things. Again, we all go mental and mm -hmm. they come back and go, actually, do you yeah, know what? Yeah, yeah. We've had a think <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's miraculous. And then I suppose the most recent one is the uh, meals, school meals for um, kids who, who need them. And obviously we had some disgusting 
rancid, repulsive Tory MPs um, voting against that, mm-hmm. even though they've been siphoning off billions um, to to recently set up companies with something like a hundred pounds capital, and they're getting they're getting contracts for seventy million, eighty million, um, but they they're even eat out to help out costs what something like half a billion. I might be yeah, wrong there. I'm yeah. sure it costs about half a billion, but they couldn't set aside a wee bit of money for kids anyway. Um, we saw oh, we had Douglas Ross as well saying we support it and blah blah blah. When every Scottish Tory MP voted against it and he abstained, you, you <laughs> don't get it. You don't oh, get it. No, honestly, <laughs> honestly. Anyway, so that's the third point where um, there's a public outcry and Marcus Rashford so magnificently leading that campaign and have to do the turnaround. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I suppose it just shows what we could achieve if we sort of collectively and unanimously demanded that this change came but the fact that there has been such a public outcry that they've then just backed off again yeah it just shows you and i'm not saying as if like i'm some revolutionary scottish answer to che guevara or anything but it just shows what happens they work for us yeah you work for us we, our tax money mm-hmm. pays puts you there yeah, yeah. you fucking do what we say it, so yeah, I've got yeah. pure head up and I know that has, that has to be tempered to a bit and we elect these people for a reason to represent us but when they're not representing what benefits us as a society then that's when we have to we have to come together right yeah. everybody meet me at 2pm George Square tomorrow and we're going <laughs> to no, we'll make that COVID <laughs> we've already oh, spoke shit. about that aye, shit aye. <laughs> Right, well, everybody be on standby. Get your pitchforks ready, uh, and I'll let you know the details. No, but in all seriousness, um, it is. It's, I suppose it's good that they've kind of backed off a wee bit. So you're still in operation. Still in operation. The, the week after the obstruction um, was our big, busiest week, you know. And I think what's happened is because I think people already trust me in the city centre. You know, my last job was in the city centre as an HIV outreach coordinator, mm-hmm. testing people, homeless people out in the street for HIV, you know, rapid tests. So a lot of people knew me already, um, but they trust me even more now because obviously, you know, they see me doing yeah. what I'm doing, you know, and the next week we had more people coming and injecting the van than any other week. So the yeah. police have actually done me a favour in terms of how popular I am <laughs> with the city centre drug users now, you know, like yeah. he's got our back, you know what I mean? Like he's... Yeah. He's uh, definitely somebody that we can trust. But I think, see see what you were just saying there? I know you were like highlighting three points, but I think the point about Marcus Rashford and the school meal stuff is really an important point that mm. actually is in length, length in some way. Because, you know, that that's what, what, what a lot of the, the people who are suffering on the streets of Glasgow come from. Places where they, they 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 didn't have food to eat yeah. when they were growing up, you know they didn't have meals, they didn't have food, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, the reality is that we need we need a Mar- Marcus Rashford on our team right now, yeah. you know, to step up and fight this case. We've had great international recognition and support. You know, from Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister in New Zealand, she's came out and really publicly supported us and she's somebody that needs to be listened to. She's the current chair of the Global Commission on Drugs Policy, you know, and international recognition and support from places like Canada and Denmark and Switzerland, Mm -hmm. Portugal, where we're seeing changes to the way that we deal with drug use benefit the whole of their society you know so um, we just need somebody like uh, a Marcus Rashford or what's one of your big Celtic players have you got any big Celtic players these days (laughs) (laughs) well well, I'm trying to think who would be a sort of young person we'll see what I don't know see what Mikey Johnson's up to or something Um, the whole I mean 
constantly jailing people for being in possession of a bag of heroin or coke or whatever. I suppose never cocaine, um, but let's say heroin. It's almost akin to there being like a massive hole in your roof, and instead of fixing the hole in the roof, you're just focusing on catching the wee drops. But yeah. eventually, it's going to overspill. Or like being down at the, I don't know, down at the beach and trying to like sweep the water back as the tide comes in. Like it's yeah, a, it's just yeah. a never-ending task that you're never going to win. So you've you've got to come up with other things, build some sort of, I don't know, dam, wall, whatever. Um, but I, it's. Um, I think enough, enough is enough. I think the fact that um, so many, as you say, 15 states gone towards decriminalisation or have implemented and passed decriminalisation, you've got Portugal, uh, and I'm sure there's other things that are going on across the world, and it's, I mean, it's no worked. Whatever yeah. they've been trying has no worked until this point, so it's... Um, yeah, and I think we need to look, Sean, at the reality, you know, like they just say no years gone and passed, you know, and yeah. President Nixon talking about an all-out all out offensive, <laughs> the war on drugs, you well, know. The, the, the kids, the, was it Grange Hill? Grange Hill singing the songs just So they no. were in the White House and two of them smoked a joint. Not that I give a shit, but two of them smoked a joint yeah, at the White yeah. House as yeah. they were doing just say no, so yeah. do me a favour. And I think Zamo went on to have some issues as well later in life you know and that's the that's the reality of it you know i think just say no and and let's bust all these drug dealers is just not mm. going to work you know for anybody wondering what green shell zamo and just say no is um i've got a ridiculous cultural recall because it happened before i was born i think uh, yeah, yeah but i yeah. still i don't know i still somehow am aware of these things basically green shell was a cbbc program and they did a thing called just say no about saying no to drugs and they went and sang at the white house when who did you say it was Nixon? Nancy Reagan and uh, oh, Nancy, Reagan. Nancy and Ronald Reagan were in at the time. See, I'm really showing my age now, but um, the actual, uh, you know, the, like I said before, the war on drugs dates back to over a hundred years now. But yeah. I think we all look to President Nixon because he gave that big address. You know, it was like this needs to be an all-out offensive. This is a war that we need to win. You know, and. It's just never, you know, it's never going to change unless the legislation and the approach to drug use changes. It's here to stay, you know. Mm. Have you ever seen Michael Gove sitting in the sitting in the House of Commons at times when you're like, yeah, they appear to be. I'm not making any accusations. I'm just simply making an observation for anybody <laughs> who's maybe a grass. But it just sometimes I look at him and think, you sure that? I'm sure it's a coincidence. It's, but you sure do look like people like somebody that's taken cocaine in the last half hour well I'm quite willing to buy another van and drive it down to Westminster and create, <laughs> create some tables like fancy tables and stuff on, on the yeah. side so people can obviously snort drugs as well yeah, you know it wasn't my, ever my plan to go down that route but you know we start, can provide safe consumption for anybody start for the top down trickle down change because yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I don't think anybody's smashing as much gear as, as those lads and, and ladies in there Um Ordinarily at this point, when I'm interviewing somebody, I would give them an opportunity to invite people to where they are, but I doubt that's something <laughs> you're going to say here. <laughs> However, people may want to, to support it and that. So where can they find you? What are the best links for them to find more information or to get in touch or anything else like that? Yeah, so uh, on my, my, my Twitter's the easiest to, to, to find. Um, just at Peter Crycant. And you can find our website through there. Um, we've got a link tree which takes you into our website. I you know. can find our donate button in there. There's access to 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 volunteer. Although, um, you know, so many people are stepping forward, but 
we would we would happily support the creation of other sites. Um, in yesterday's uh, newspaper report, Dr. Andrew McCauley spoke about that. You know, from uh, Caledonian University right. about you know other sites uh, popping up around the UK. You know, and, and if that happens. Uh, it just challenges the the framework and the law even further. Um, what what I would suggest is that going forward we look at uh, gazebo type sites for other people because you know the van does implicate people in terms of actually belonging to somebody and having to be insured. Whereas you don't have to insure a gazebo, you know. Aye, aye. C- certainly in Scotland, you know, with the right to camp anywhere, you can just go and patch a gazebo up. And you should uh, have a word with like Jeff Ellis or somebody and set up some sort of tea in the park. Style thing. Well, we're getting down Glasgow Green next week with a bunch of gazebos. <laughs> um, we've already done that actually. Paul Sweeney, the former Labour MP for the for Glasgow, he he's been heavily involved in volunteering regularly, and he took responsibility for setting up a gazebo a couple of weeks back there mm-hmm. at the bottom of London Road. It was set up for ten minutes, and then we didn't really know if people would come there. But it was twenty yards for a public injecting site. Ten minutes, the gazebo was up, and two people came to inject heroin right out of prison. They walked past. What's this all about? You can inject in here rather than that stinking, filthy um, park over there. Oh yeah, great. God, yeah, That's crazy. just out of prison, and we're seeing that a lot. Um, two two people actually seen seen the consumption facility on the news while they were in prison and came and used it on the day they got got out. They would have been using anyway. Mm-hmm. They were coming into the city centre to 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 score drugs, and they would have used in the alleyway. Thankfully, you know, their first hits getting out of prison, we were able to supervise them because that's the most dangerous time for for overdose deaths, people Mm -hmm. being liberated from prison or potentially people coming out of rehab after having detoxed, you know, where where they, they, if they relapse straight away sort of thing, that's that's Mm -hmm. a really dangerous period of time for people. Uh, Paul Sweeney, previous blethered guest, I'm pretty sure him and I spoke about, I spoke about it with Mary Black, but I'm sure Paul and I spoke about the whole idea of decriminalisation, obviously something he's putting his, his money where his mouth is, so to speak, by acting. Yeah. Um, somebody, a real loss, I'm not going to lie, I've, I say this to his face, like I do want to see an independent Scotland, but a real loss to, to Glasgow in terms of representation because I saw first-hand the job he did, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, with a lot of care and um, a lot of genuine good intent, so hopefully we'll see him as... Might be the first minister of an independent Scotland. Who knows? Who knows? I'd like to see him back in politics as well because yeah, you know too. I've got close to him um, over the last couple of months. You know we speak a lot, and I can see that he's a genuinely caring guy. You know, and he can t- he cares about his 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 area. You know, and this is his area, Glasgow's where he's from. He's for this. He went to my school. Yeah, we're for the same area, Glasgow Northeast. Yeah, and he cares. You know, he's out there volunteering, putting himself on the front line, and he's not doing it for the press or the media. He's doing it because he cares about individual people dying on a daily basis. When we can, when we can stop that, mm-hmm. we, we have. He's, uh, I, he's been disruptive, and to round up, I would say that I believe um, the key to to all radical change positive change in the world has been through major disruption yeah. whether the establishment likes or not so I wish you good luck with, with everything coming up if, I, uh, if you ever want to come back on if there's any other updates uh, uh, sorry any new updates that you want to share or anything that needs any support but other than that thanks very much mate for, for thank coming you. out thank you Sean it's been a pleasure who'd have thought you could get a laugh when you're talking about something that's destructive yeah, as drugs but yeah. there you go that's blethered for you you've got to keep it got to keep a bit of humour in it cheers mate thanks mate Thank you.
Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio. Escape your every day with out-of-this-world action. From the gritty apocalypse of the Walking Dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of The Watch and the criminal underbelly of Gangs of London, AMC Plus is more than entertaining. It's epic. Feel all the chills and thrills with Shudder's Halfway to Halloween Month. Experience Shudder's biggest month of horror featuring a new season of Creepshow and new movie premieres every week. All available ad-free and on demand. Start your free trial today at amcplus.com.